Colleges is brought to you in part by Osiris Media. If you love live music, if you love music in general, and I know you do because you're listening to this right here, head on over to OsirisPod.com and find all the great shows up there uh, like Freak Flag Flying with David Crosby, uh, Dead to Me, uh, our sister podcast hosted by Casey Ray, Broke Down Pod hosted by our friend Jonathan Hart. Find all that and more at OsirisPod.com, who are partnered with Jambase to bring you not just podcasts and videos, but live events as well. Osiris Media, killing it on the regular. Now let's get on with the show. Okay. It happens here, and it finishes here. Two men enter, one man Nearly a two-word review of just a shit sandwich. Welcome back, fellow music lovers. You are now tuned into yet another exciting adventure with us here on Discologist. I'm your host, Kevin, as usual, coming to you live from a fully sanitized tiny shack just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I hope everybody is staying safe, staying indoors. I know this is all uh, a little new and freaky, but uh, it gives you time to you know get in touch with yourself a little more. Hopefully, uh, that's the, the worst uh, that we have to bear here. Uh, we are going to be actually cranking up uh, the speed of how we put these out just because uh, some people like to listen to podcasts when you're doing this. And uh, so we're going to be hitting these pretty quickly in the next few weeks. And uh, hopefully it helps out if you find yourself home alone bored and, and the sound of our voices comforts you, then uh, then we are happy to provide that service. Uh, the first one of these we're going to be talking about is uh, an album that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, that uh, Actually, I did talk more about that. The Sundays, Reading, Writing, and Arithmetic. It was a, uh, a landmark album for a whole lot of reasons, uh, and that's what we're going to be discussing today. Joining me now once again, Mr. Michael Zwern from Washington, D.C. How are you guys doing down there, Michael? We are doing okay. We are in a little bit of a self-isolation right now. We're trying to protect ourselves and to protect our neighbors and our friends and our elderly relatives. And we're going to try to get through this as best as we can. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, I think, the key to all this. Uh, it does also present a remarkable opportunity to talk about music. So I believe we'll be doing that a good bit over the next uh, few weeks. But uh, this is one that we... Uh, didn't quite get to around the time. It just had an anniversary. Was it was it 20, 30, 30 years old? 30 years Oh, my God. We're all old. This, this, this is happening. Um, talking about the Sundays. Uh, this is a band formed in 1988. Uh, Harriet Wheeler and uh, David Gavurin, who's a guitar player, uh, they met at Bristol University and uh, then padded their band out with Paul Brindley on bass and Patrick Hannon. And um, this, for me, it was like sort of this weird transition from college rock into indie rock this is pre-nirvana pre-alternative explosion uh bands like this existed uh a lot of times just in john hughes soundtracks uh which we're going to talk about uh but uh this this album uh first of all wheeler's voice is this undeniable force of nature and uh this album came out in 1990 sort of at the end of all these 
these great uh, alternative indie albums and and songs that were on soundtracks uh, that that really I think defined people like you and me our love of of music or at least indie alternative music whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, they sound like. Sometimes the Smiths, sometimes not. They they sound like a band that just really, really did their research of all this. And and I, I was really trying to put my finger on all of this and what is so appealing about this band. Besides, they are the ultimate. This is the ultimate CD to put on if you were in college in your dorm room, and it was getting to be like sexy time with the lady. You could put this on, and, and no, it works. And 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 that's. But there, there's so much more to this stuff than that. But that is one thing about it for a lot of reasons. But uh, and what what I put my finger on, landed on finally is that they just went out and did their homework. They, the songs that these this group writes are uh, are a distillation of of a, an entire era. I think. One of the the sort of uh, impossible to avoid hits uh, that we want to get started with here is here's where the story ends. It has this turn in here of, of a phrase. Uh, it says, it's that little souvenir of a terrible year which makes my eyes feel sore. Oh, I never should have said the books that you read were all I loved you for. I don't know why that works as well as it does but for me it's it's sort of a perfect couplet uh let's hear a little bit of this right now uh, and if you haven't uh really experienced the sundays prepare to get your mind blown here's here's where the story ends So this is their emblematic song for a lot of listeners. It is able to do two very difficult things. It seems superficially very easy, frilly, light, with those strummed guitars and and Harriet Wheeler's lilting vocals, which are truly unlike anything else that was going on at that time on popular radio. But it's actually very cutting. You know, it's it's a mean song at times. It's kind of a vindictive song so it sort of sounds light and easy and charming and 
then you listen to those lyrics and that couplet that you, you singled out, and you realize that Harriet Wheeler can be quite a vicious kind of vocalist. She's got she's got some toughness to her that doesn't come through on a first listen to the music. And so for a lot of Americans, I think this was the first exposure they had to this band. They had already gotten some singles in the UK. And one of the things I, I learned in catching up on this record, which I hadn't listened to carefully for a long time, is the first thing is that the record is officially, I think, pronounced Reading, writing and arithmetic, because Reading is their hometown. They're from Reading, Berkshire, England. And of course, they were very domestic. You know, they were, they met, they, they, they became a couple, they would marry and have children. And they were kind of, you know, rural, quiet, insular kind of people. So reading that and, and learning that little factoid and then learning how this song becomes kind of their um, calling card to an American audience, you start to think, well, there's something more going on than this just being a a frilly, easy indie pop record with with Harriet Wheeler's uh, lilting vocals, because there's a lot of substance that sort of exists in these songs that you don't necessarily immediately credit them for, and and that definitely conveys in "Here's Where the Story Ends" and in several other songs. You get the sense this is kind of a record with some anger in it, and and it's not immediately evident, but there's a lot of kind of like you know, teeth clenched kind of tone in the uh, in the song lyrics here. I think Wheeler wrote most of the lyrics. I think they write the songs together. But you got the sense that this was written with some degree of, of, of anger and regret of over things that had happened to them. And and for some reason that doesn't convey in the in the uh, audio, but the lyrics, you get the sense of the toughness that Harriet Wheeler brought to those songs. I think subconsciously it, 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 it might convey, though, because, you know, there's this fascinating quote about this from them. Uh, it says a lot of bands who get signed who have been playing the circuit for years have 30 songs for uh, the first album. Uh, this is Gavurin speaking. He said, but we didn't have enough for our first album, let alone our second. We can't write to a deadline. You can't force a whole load of songs out quickly. They honestly weren't even sure they wanted to be a band. And, and so what you have is this couple who got together and, and somebody just basically suggested it, like, why don't you give it a go? And what came out is, like you said, there is this – there's meanness, meanness to this. There's uh, a, a almost a punk snarl uh, to Harriet Wheeler's voice at times, which you don't it, – again, it's not, not – none of this is immediately apparent. Uh, you know, a lot of this album is something, despite what uh, what I said, it was it could be best used for. Uh, prior is is about this uh, this breakup seemingly, and it's about a breakup that not only didn't go well, it was it was pretty pyrrhic in nature. And and you know the the protagonist here, assuming it's Wheeler, um, it burned everything to the ground, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And and it's just uh, it it turns this this lilt uh, that we respond to as like, oh, this is a, a nice, fun song uh, into very uh, melancholy, very bittersweet uh, when you start to dig into this stuff. Yeah. And so when I think about the way that um, Sunday's formed, it's obviously a complement of the guitar tones from Dave Gavurin. And you mentioned the Smiths. I also hear a lot of similarity in that guitar tone to the Lloyd Cole and the Commotions records and to some of those other British records that were coming out in the middle to late 80s. And then, of course, Wheeler's vocals. Now, no one else 
really in pop music sings like her now and no one else sang like her then. So when she disappeared from the scene after three records, this one, the second one, and then Static and Silence, her absence is almost um, as loud as her presence was. Um, she had a, a style of singing in popular music that really no one else had tried to do in pop songs, at least particularly not on this side of the Atlantic. And I think we're going to probably talk a little bit about this, but there's a couple of singers who clearly drew inspiration to the way that Wheeler sang pop lyrics. And you couldn't have had a Cranberries without Harriet no. Wheeler. You wouldn't have had Dolores O'Riordan's vocals on the song Linger. There was sort of an artsier, um, twee pop crowd, like the Sarah Records label and the Cocteau Twins, which clearly drew something from the way Harriet Wheeler sang those high notes. I think that on the Irish side, Sinead O'Connor, who was coming out around the same time, she had some similarities. And mostly in Britain, though, uh, Eddie Reader, Fairground Att Attraction, and a few others, but not so much the United States side. I think it's a hard, it's a hard way to sing pop music. And I think that her vocal is really a challenging way to write pop songs around because it's, it's high pitched. She sings in a kind of a, a a fluid tone where the lyrics aren't immediately recognizable. And it kind of gets dreamier at the point where you're not paying attention to her as a singer of songs, but rather as a kind of a, a vocal instrument. And so I think there's something similar in the, uh, the dream pop scene in the dark wave scene in the United States with some of the bands that came out of um, the Project Records label. And, you know, some of them are pretty below the radar screen, but now, but they were similarly using um, a sort of a thin, high-pitched female vocal over kind of swirling guitar tones and synthesizers in a way that was treating it more as an instrument than as a um, conveyor of a story. But where Harry Wheeler excelled was that it was both an instrument and the songs themselves had a lot of craft and a lot of lyrical content to delve into. It wasn't just like they would flip by and then they'd be gone. You actually had something to think about once the songs would uh, recede into the background. Yeah, she's she's truly one of of the greats. And I, and I wonder uh, if a lot of like our reaction to just her voice and how it works is because we're American. Like I, I, we have no way of knowing how this plays uh, for an English audience. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but but you know you often hear uh, people from other countries who are, who are singing music that we identify with as American and stuff in a more American accent. And I, and I think what happens here, and I think Dolores O'Riordan, uh, you know, took this from her, learned from her uh, full stop, is that the, it, it retains that British uh, identity. And and you don't you don't often hear that and and something about that it it, it triggers all sorts of associations in our brain, um, when 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 she's singing and you, you know I don't know if that if it's that specific thing that makes her voice so timeless, but uh, you know it doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is a very British sensibility and. As an indication of how British it was, they hit number one on the charts repeatedly in Britain without that kind of success in the United States. Um, and a song I think we were going to talk about was their first single was not Here's Where the Story Ends. Their first single was Can't Be Sure. And that was a number one alternative rock hit in the United Kingdom.
the, the charts in Britain were at that time very fluid. Indie bands could get a, a song to John Peel in the 1980s and it would become a number one hit song on a, on a seven inch or whatever. But this was popular music. It was very popular music in Britain at that time. And it did cross over first, I think, with Here's Where the Story Ends and then later um, on their third record with uh, the song Summertime, which is they got that famous siren um, and and it was a highly popular sound in Britain, but it was sort of a niche sound to an American audience. So it was, it was definitely college radio in America. That, that song features a whole other, uh, another classic couplet here. You know, and did you know desire is a terrible thing, the worst that I can find? And did you know desire is a terrible thing, but I rely on mine? I, I, I mean, performance aside, the writing that, that this couple delivers is above and beyond anything and again it gets back to this idea of them distilling everything about uh this type of music that was occurring in the 80s into its final and perfect form it's like if the pretty and pink soundtrack became sentient and started a band this is just um you know this is just uh flawless craftsmanship by people that honestly you kind of get the impression they don't really give a fuck they're just like they're just tossing it off i don't think they cared a lot i think they were very happy just writing little pop songs and playing them and i don't think that they took fame very seriously i don't think that they valued it very highly and as a result it probably wasn't hard for them to walk away the 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 closest point of comparison to, for the Sundays in a lot of ways is Everything But The Girl. And I'm a big fan of Everything But The Girl. Like them, they were a couple that met in art school. There was a, a, a musician, an instrumentalist, and a singer. And they kind of became global pop stars in kind of a weird way. I mean, if you listen to the, the first couple of Everything But The Girl song uh, records, like their self-titled one or Eden, you think, well, this is a band that's like driven by Brazilian bossa nova and little folk songs and whatever. And they ended up becoming a, a worldwide, you know, dance band. But, you know, they were more focused, I think, on the idea of the Sundays and ETBG, on the idea of a couple sitting down together in a bedroom writing songs and figuring out what worked for them. I think they were less interested in the machinery of the global popular music industry. And clearly, they demonstrated that in the case of the Sundays by simply walking away down the road. They said, oh, okay, we're done. We did what we wanted to do. They they released their songs. They, they put out, out into the world, and some of them became, um, you know, beloved by certain audiences, and some of them kind of crept below the radar screen for most people. But but they did what they wanted to do as artists, and they were not interested in, in you know, being driven by what their producer said might sell or what the record label needed. I mean, they put out records on their own terms. And I think you have a that quote from David Kavurin was like, you know, we wrote what we wanted. <laughs> we, we're not going to write to deadline. <laughs> That's a good line. And what's, fasc what's fascinating about this is, like, I actually was not uh, hip to this album. I, I got hip to him on Blind. Oh, and the okay, reason, so the and, 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 and the reason that I got hip to them, and this is, you know, for a band that really seems to almost shun this type of stuff and really just wants to get to work, uh, I got hip to that because it, it, and it remains the only commercial I've seen like this. There was a commercial for the album on MTV. 
Really? It was an actual. It was like if you were selling toilet paper, <laughs> uh, and it, but it was just and it, and it featured the Wild Horses cover. And I right. was like, "Well, I like the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Maybe I'm gonna check this out." And then immediately dove back into uh, writing, writing arithmetic, and was like, "This this band is everything that I've been listening to for the past decade. This is fucking amazing. Where who are they? Where are they?" And and had to know everything about them. And um, you know, I remember that that album uh, was Aesthetic and Silence when that came out. That was a big deal in '97 because uh, because you hadn't heard from them for a while, and by that point, their audience had uh, uh, was was craving new output for them. But also, I think it had codified into this weird subset of people who are fans of this type of music that either really really go hard for the Sundays mm-hmm. or just don't know who the fuck they are. Well. And and if you if you think about it, by '97 when they released their third and and to date final record, Static and Silence, the popular music industry had caught up to some extent to that kind of music. So you had Sarah McLaughlin was getting really huge. Yet she did Lilith Fair shortly thereafter. There was this idea that that women fronted alternative guitar driven bands were in the pop sphere in a way that they hadn't been in the United States before. They had been in Britain. You know, Britain already had that stuff, but the United States didn't have it quite so much. Uh, so I think that there was a pent-up audience that had grown over Blind and Reading, Writing and Arithmetic, and those are two very short albums. Uh, th- there was an audience for that by 97, and then they released that record, they toured, they had their modest global stardom, and then they said, okay, we're good. They went on hiatus, and they raised their family, and they went back to their little suburban or small town home wherever that is i think they had done what they wanted to do you know they succeeded in a model that worked for them as a couple and worked for the sundays as a band and and it's really hard to critique anything like that when they've released something beautiful into the world and they've watched it flower and grow and now they're gonna go live their lives i think that's you know a lovely thing it is. It's fantastic. And what they've said about that is is uh, they were asked, I believe it was like 2015 maybe, uh, and somebody caught up with them. And, and uh, Gavurin was like, hey, yeah, of course we're making music. I don't know <laughs> if it'll see the light of day, and then we don't really care. We're just it's like not for, It's not kids. for the world. It's for them. And if, and if, you, ta- if you think about like that attitude, uh, it, it's cocky, honestly. And, but if you take a song off, like, off this album, like I Won – um, which is just a devastating description of the cost of being right uh, in a romantic relationship. If you've if you've done that work already, where else is there to go? 
you know, this idea that uh, that you always have to be pushing forward. Uh, there is a lot of merit to that, but there's also a lot of merit to uh, deciding how what your life is going to be, and it doesn't necessarily have to be just your art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they were they were very deliberate about what they wanted to do, and when they had achieved it in a way that they were comfortable with, you know, there was a sense that their um, artistic goals had been met, and they didn't need to write a uh, reading, writing, arithmetic part two. They didn't need to do that again. They had they had done it. And I kind of admire that. I admire the fact that they're, they were comfortable with their art. They were comfortable with their, uh, their family life. And they don't need to put out a record just because someone said they should. That, that quote from 2015 is pretty good. Like, yeah, they're, they're writing music. They're musicians. They're, they're going to sit in their bedroom and continue writing songs. That's what they do. But they don't need to do it for someone else. <laughs> right. Right, and that and that's uh, I think the biggest takeaway from uh, this band and this album is that um, you know th- as much as this means to other people and means to like fans like you and me, I don't know that uh, like they certainly didn't in- that wasn't their goal. You know, it, it, it was this is the result of people wanting to do just simply great work. Yeah, I. When when you go back and listen to those songs kind of in isolation, as we all are right now, um, when you go back and listen to the songs, they're just this pristine kind of perfection. It, they're, it's not big music. They're not aiming for grand themes or, you know, global kind of issues. It's highly personal. It's highly relationship-driven songwriting. And their vision is small, yeah, that's true. It's universal, but it's not. They're looking at things from the context of one person's relationship with another person, which is always, you know, something that people can emulate and 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 identify with. But they're working in small concepts, and they're doing it very precisely, very cleanly, very beautifully and perfectly. But they're not going to, you know, goodness, it was it was the late nineteen eighties and early nineties in Britain. They're not going to write a song about um, apartheid. They're not going to write a song about Ethiopian Ethiopian uh, famines or or whatever. They're just working in miniature, and that's fine because that was a a strand of the indie scene in Britain that was very focused on the kind of you know relationships between people, and they could be friends or they could be lovers or partners. But that was the world in which they lived, and and to some extent. American indie labels beat, you know, I was thinking of K Records and Olympia beat happening and whatnot. They kind of followed that same idea. It doesn't sound the same because no one sounds like the Sundays. But um, the idea that, you know, you write about the small things that are in your life that make a difference to you. You don't you don't try to make yourself out to something you're not. And um, I always thought, you know, this is a digression, but do you think about how... Um, um, the Cocteau Twins, Lynn Fraser, and you think about how um, everything but the girls, um, uh, Tracy got roped into Massive Attack. Why didn't that happen to Harriet Wheeler? That's an odd right. question. Wouldn't that have been perfect? Uh, yeah, well, I, yes, it would, it would have been perfect. But but I, but I think uh, I think for all the reasons that you just cited, that, that's that's why that there was no interest in that. I, I think ironically, like all these labels you name and stuff, this uh, occurred at a time in the music industry when this 
really focusing on just this smallness was viable. And and so they and the Sundays were able to have a career where pretty pretty soon after uh, it was no longer viable. Uh, that that and all that means is that like the art uh, the art arguably got like better as people realized that this was a, a path that you definitely should go down. But they couldn't sustain a career or or uh, or a career just being an artist, a musician, and um and and pair that with the fact that like if you hear this now, like. It's hard to place the era, and I don't know if that's familiarity with it on my part or simply that it's just like if you reach back and you're looking for like sort of signposts along the way, one of the things that you're going to hit is the Sundays. Sure. For such a small band, and it's it's just, it's just literally like turning point, a fork in the road that you're just going to be like, oh, I can go to the Sundays or I can go here. Like, what am I going to do? Uh, and 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 I think invariably people will uh, discover it if they go looking uh, for this type of history and this type of uh, this type of music back in the past. We we point out bands like Nirvana uh, or even like Wilco and, and other stuff and indie rocking bands, and people often forget about the Sundays, and you can't forget about the Sundays because they're there, they're just as valid and just as big. And I think the impact, while different, was uh, was just as big, if not bigger. Uh, it's it's just hard. It's so hard to to spot it <laughs> because so much has changed in the way people are going to do that, and so much interference uh, in the purity of what they were doing. Yeah, I, part of me wonders if a if a Lord or a Billie Eilish ever came across these kind of songs because the idea of exactly. writing, you know, you know, little songs about weird relationships and whatnot in your bedroom. That's kind of how those two got out of here. <laughs> got out of their yeah. uh, isolation in New Zealand and Los Angeles. I think that there's something interestingly, um, you know, complimentary in the stories that they can tell. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And and that, and that's that's exactly what I'm saying. And uh and it would be uh I would be ecstatic to see more artists like that like <laughs> say, "Yes, Harriet Wheeler, man. That's that's the person. I mean, I've seen male singers be like, yeah, Harriet Wheeler. That's really? why I sing. So it, it is such a natural uh, or, or seems natural uh, expression. And, and so unlike anything else, uh, so idiosyncratic. And it's just like there's nobody like Harriet Wheeler. And uh, and for and for me, this is this is one of the, I think, perfect albums made by one of the very few perfect bands. Sunday's Writing, Writing, Arithmetic is available everywhere. You can find fine records or stream them. They are uh, uh, kind of the progenitors of social distancing. As, as you heard us talk about, they sort of removed themselves from, from the music landscape. But, uh, but we have three remarkable albums, including this one. So, uh, you know, if you've got the time now, then uh, dig in. 
digging into their catalog. It's rewarding. And, and if you've never heard of them, you're going to find a lot of stuff that you hear and the stuff that you love and you just didn't know uh, that this was the band that really um, paved the way, I guess, for, for all this type of music. So uh, thanks to Michael for hanging out. Uh, that is it for this episode of Discologist. If you like what you heard, tell all your friends. Uh, but beyond that, you know, it doesn't matter if you follow us or whatever. Just just be safe out there uh, and take care of your fellow humans uh, while we, we all get through this. Uh, do the standard. Wash your hands. You know, don't go out in public. Uh, don't have COVID parties, for fuck's sake. Do not do that. Just, um, just try and chillax. And, uh, you know, we are open right now. I think I put this out on Twitter. You know, if you are going a little stir crazy and you're like, I would love to talk about music, but I've never talked about music, it doesn't matter if you haven't. Uh, hit me up at Kevin at chunkyglasses.com and uh, hit me up with what you want to talk about, and uh, we'll see if we can make it happen. We have a pretty, pretty wild remote solution that we use for all of these podcasts and are happy to uh, extend that opportunity to you. So that is it. We are out of here. Coming back. In a few days, we're going to be talking about Morphine's The Night, and then we're going to be talking about some jazz. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a wild ride, kids. So uh, stay safe out there, and we'll talk to you in a few. Kenobi! <laughs> 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 <laughs>